Guess what? This morning we're going to be looking at the genealogy of Jesus, in case you hadn't worked it out. Genealogy of Jesus, Luke chapter 3, verse 23 to 38. We're going to look at that genealogy, but to be more precise, we're going to dip into it. We're going to dip into a genealogy, but what does genealogy mean? It means a line of descent, a line of descent. Right from the off, someone might point out to me that we're supposed to avoid genealogies. We're not supposed to spend our time looking at these lines of descent. After all, you may know that in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul, no less, he said to Timothy, neither give heed to fables, fables are myths, and endless genealogies. So we're not to give heed to endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. That's what the Apostle said. However, the context of that instruction to Timothy from the Apostle was that he was telling him to sort out certain people who, instead of teaching God's law, taught man-made myths in the form of genealogies, which he later referred to as old wives' tales. In the very same letter, in, in uh, he referred to these so-called genealogies as old wives' tales. Coming back to the genealogy that I've read to you in Luke chapter 3, it most certainly is not an old wife's tale. It shows us the ancestry of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ according to his humanity and it occupies no less than 18 verses of scripture. So that alone should tell you, I really shouldn't skip that, 18 verses of scripture, you know, unless the Holy Spirit decided to just pad out um, Luke chapter 3 with 18 verses of stuff that we're to avoid. Clearly that's not the case, is it? So I'd like to say that far from avoiding it, we ought to look to God the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to instruct us as we spend some time unpacking just a few verses from this genealogy and as we see the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory and his majesty as we look at the genealogy. It's got to be worth it, hasn't it? If we leave here having seen something of Jesus in his glory and majesty, then it's not to be avoided. (coughs) First of all, the genealogy genealogy traces the descent of Jesus through the lineage of his mother Mary. Just look at verse 23 in Luke chapter 3. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age as being uh, being as was supposed the son of Joseph which was the son of Heli. That verse follows on from details that are given in the previous verses concerning the baptism of Jesus by John in the River Jordan. We looked at that last time. 
when that baptism happened, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and anointed him for the work that God had given him to do. And the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, in him am I well pleased. And that whole occasion marked the beginning of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're now being told in verse 23 is that Jesus was about 30 years of age when he was anointed to preach good tidings unto the meek and to proclaim liberty or forgiveness to repentant sinners. He was about 30 years of age. After giving the approximate age of Jesus, Luke informs us that Jesus was presumed to be, that means that he was imagined to be, people thought that he was the son of Joseph. After that begins the genealogy of Jesus with the words, which was the son of Heli. Who was the son of Heli? You look at that, you look as I'm speaking, have a look for yourself. Is it, is it Joseph, who Luke has just told us, was imagined to be the son of Jesus, uh, rather the father of, of the, the father of Jesus? He was imagined to be. So having said that, then Luke goes on to give all those verses of genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ through the lineage of Joseph, who was imagined to be the father of Jesus. I ask that because a quick look at another genealogy of Jesus One in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, reveals that Joseph was the son of Jacob. In that verse, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 16, it says, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Joseph, who is called the Christ. So in that genealogy, we're being told very clearly that Jesus was the son of Mary. However, we're being told something different in Matthew's genealogy, that Joseph was the husband of Mary. He was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Is Matthew telling us that Joseph's father was Jacob, whilst Luke is telling us that Joseph's father was Heli? At this point, you'd have to ask, how many fathers does someone have? Well, that's not the case, and I'll explain, and I will try to keep it simple, because I want to go on to look at other things in this genealogy. Basically, the genealogy of Jesus that is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, where Joseph is said to be the husband of Mary, with the emphasis on him being Mary's husband, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. The emphasis is on Joseph the husband of Mary. In other words, as the husband of Mary, he was the legal father of Jesus. In law, he was considered to be the father of Jesus. Now, we know that the father of Jesus is God. But we're being told very clearly in Matthew's genealogy that he was the husband of of Mary. So the genealogy of Jesus is reckoned through um, to be through Joseph, the father 
of Mary, uh, the, the husband of Mary, and therefore, legally at any rate, the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that makes sense to you. Whereas in Luke's Gospel, Joseph is simply mentioned as being the one whom people imagine to be the father of Jesus. There's no emphasis on him being the husband of Mary. There's no emphasis. They're not looking. Uh, Luke was not looking at the legalities of things here. Uh, uh, it's just imagined to be the father of Jesus. And then the genealogy follows the line of Jesus not through Joseph, who was imagined to be his father, but through Mary, his mother. In other words, in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, Jesus is said to be the son or the grandson, more likely, the grandson of Heli through his mother Mary. Mary's father, Heli, and then when you look at Matthew's gospel, Joseph's father, Jacob. So don't... Why am I saying all this? Well, first of all, when someone comes along, uh, some Bible sceptics, I've met plenty of them in my time, Bible sceptics, they don't read the Bible for themselves, they just go on the, on the internet and they find questions to tie you up in knots. There are various websites that specialise in that. Someone, next time someone comes up to you and says with a little sneer on his face perhaps, how many fathers did Joseph have? Well you can say one his father was Jacob and then if he wants to know more you can explain that Heli was actually the father of Mary, the mother of Jesus and for what it's worth, what I'm saying to you now, it actually agrees with the Jewish writings the the Talmud, in the Talmud uh, it says that Heli was the father of Mary, not of Joseph. Obviously, that's not inspired writings, but uh, it's, it's interesting to note anyway. Having pointed out that the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3 follows the lineage of Mary and not of Joseph, hopefully I haven't caused too much confusion and my exp- uh, with my explanation, and we'll move on now and look at some more verses. Second thing I want to bring to you is that Adam was the son of God. Let's just look at that last verse in the genealogy, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Adam, the son of God there, we're told. There are professing Christians and even some eminent preachers and pastors who, as far as I'm concerned, have have bought into the lie of the evolutionists who claim that man has evolved over billions of years. There seems to be that need for Christians to embrace um, what the world is saying, to fall in line with the world. We don't have to, and we shouldn't do. If you're Christian, get used to swimming in the opposite direction. Don't go with the flow of this world, especially when the Bible says something else. And there are too many Christians and pastors who are bought into the lie of evolution. How do they explain chapter, uh, chapter 3 and verse 38? Adam, which was 
the Son of God. Did it take billions of years for the first man Adam to evolve and then finally to become the Son of God when he was fully man and no longer an ape or whatever? I trust you can see that evolution is ridiculous. But much more seriously, to say that the first man Adam evolved to become the Son of God is an attack on the Word of God, the Scriptures, which tells us as clear as daylight in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 that God created man in his image. He didn't evolve man in his image. God created man in his image. In the image of God created he them. Male and female created he them. It's there in the Bible. Believe it. Make no mistake about it. Evolution is evil and it is an attempt by an evil world of which the devil is prince to present the incarnate son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the product of evolution according to his humanity. After all, this is the genealogy of Jesus and we finally get to Adam who is the son of God. If Adam is the product of evolution, what does that say about the Lord Jesus Christ according to his humanity? That he comes from the apes. Ridiculous, but it's also very, very evil. Don't just think that these people who 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 teach evolution are misguided. They do the lusts of their father, the devil. It is evil and it is to be shunned. Before we move on to our next consideration, there is a stark contrast to be seen between Adam and his descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ whom the Apostle Paul describes as being the last Adam. We've got the first Adam here in verse 38, and the last Adam is Jesus. Paul teaches that by Adam, sin came into the world and death by sin, and so death passed on upon all men, for all have sinned. And we all know about that, don't we? Um, that act of disobedience in the Garden of Eden when Adam did something that ought never to be done. He sinned against God. And that opened the floodgates of sin, like a tsunami, so that sin came into the world, death by sin, and death has passed on to all men, all of us in here, sinners. We have the original sin of Adam, and also you know as well as I do, that we are we become specialists. Of, of sinning of our own accord. By contrast, the sinless obedience in life and in death of the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, results in the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life for all who are trusting in him. People who are trusting in Jesus, the last Adam, they are brought out of the darkness, the devil's dark domain, and transferred into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and they are saved and justified through faith in him. Thirdly, Jesus is a descendant of King David. Let's have a look at verse 31. 
Maybe you recognised a few of the names in this genealogy. I'm sure you will have recognised in verse 31 there. Let's have a look at it. Which was the son of Melia, which was the son of Minan, which was the son of Matata, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David. We all know David, King David of Israel. It's the one, one and the same David there. According to his humanity, Jesus is a descendant of King David. And whether you're looking at the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verse 31, that I've just read to you, or the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 6, you'll see that both of them have the Lord Jesus Christ as being a descendant of King David. That is significant. That is most significant in that the Old Testament prophecy clearly predicted that the promised Christ, the Messiah, would be a son, a descendant of King David. There'd be something wrong with the Bible. There'd be contradictions if the, if we didn't see a fulfilment of what was prophesied in the Old Testament, that the Christ would be the son of David. And we see that to be the case in the genealogy in Luke chapter 3 and the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. But as for these prophecies, speaking of the the promised Messiah being a son of David, there are several, um, but I'll give you a couple of them. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, where the prophet Isaiah said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He then goes on to say, He shall be called the mighty God. Well, who can this be? Um, A son is given and he shall be called the mighty God. That one's not rocket science, is it? You should realise that the, the prophet was speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. A son is given, a child is born, mighty God. That's clearly a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ who would be, who would be born over 700 years after that prophecy was spoken. Uh, and the prophet went on to say, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Now listen to this. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the host of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah there, Old Testament prophecy, speaking of the Son who is given, the mighty God, being upon the throne of David and having an everlasting kingdom. And then there's Psalm 89, Psalm 89, where the Lord, who was speaking about King David, when you look at the context of that psalm, the Lord is clearly speaking about David, and the Lord said in verse 29, his seed, that is the seed of David, also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. Work that one out. It's quite easy, isn't it? He's speaking about the promised Christ there. The one who would sit on the throne of David and who would have an everlasting kingdom. 
both of those Old Testament passages that I've just mentioned speak of the never-ending nature of the kingship and the throne of Christ, the son of David. And the clear implication is that Christ is not only the son of David, but that he is the everlasting God. We see clearly that he's the son of David and it speaks of his everlasting kingdom. Speaking of his eternality there, the fact that he is God as well as being the son of David. And sure enough, in Mark chapter 12, verse 35 through to 35 through to 37, Jesus brings it all together that the Christ, the Christ is the son of David according to the flesh and that he is the son of God. I'm going to read it to you, but you might like to follow with me. Uh, I'm going to read Mark chapter 12, a a few verses from there. Luke 12 verse 35 through to 37. And Jesus answered and said, while he... Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou upon my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him, Common people heard him gladly. That What Jesus said there was a response to certain people who believe that Christ is the son of David, but nothing more than that. So they were right in what they did believe, but they didn't believe enough. And Jesus wasn't actually denying in those verses that he is the son of David, that the Christ is the son of David. He wanted to go all the way here. He wanted to go beyond the Christ being the son of David. The point that Jesus made was that in Psalm 110, which we sung earlier, that was the psalm we sung earlier, and which he quoted in verse 36, King David, who wrote that psalm, refers to Christ as his Lord. King David refers to his descendant who wasn't yet in the world, who would come a thousand years later, because David was in the world a thousand years before the virgin birth, and yet he refers to the Christ as his Lord, who is seated at the right hand of God. At this point, you need to think about it and you need to ask yourself, who can sit at the right hand of God? Again, David referring to his descendant, called him Lord and said that he's seated at the right hand of God. At the right hand of God. Who can sit at the right hand of God? Can any of us? Does anyone in here imagine that he or she has a place reserved at the right hand of God? I went to out for something to eat on Friday evening with my lovely wife and our table was reserved, reserved for Glenn and one other. 
Do we have that reserve sign? Does anyone in here have a reserve sign on a seat right next to the throne of God? I hope you say no, unless you are really deluded. (laughs) And no one in this world has a seat reserved for him or her at the right hand of God. What about the angels in heaven? What about the angel Gabriel? Or even the archangel Michael? Yeah? No, not at all. We needn't think of an angel seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The angels, they stand before the throne of God. They cover their faces in his presence as they call out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So forget any idea of an angel being seated at the right hand of God. Forget any idea of you or me or anyone else in this world being seated at the right hand of God. I wonder now, who does that leave? Let me think about it. How about the Son of God? Someone who is co-equal with God. Jesus. That's the answer there. The Apostle Peter brought it all together beautifully when Jesus asked his disciples whom they thought him to be. And Peter replied, Thou art the Christ, in other words, according to your humanity, you are a descendant of David, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter then then said, he got it all together there, Jesus According to his humanity, the son of David, who's, who's, uh, and, and then according to his divinity, the son of the living God. And come to think of it, I haven't got it here, but come to think of it. You know when Jesus appeared before the kangaroo court, before his crucifixion, and Caiaphas was the high priest. And what did Caiaphas say to Jesus? I adjure thee, no less, I adjure thee that thou tell me if thou be the Christ, the Son of the living God. So even that wicked man Caiaphas, he knew that the Christ, the promised Messiah, is the Son of God. He knew that much. What he didn't believe was that Jesus was the one. And so, wrongly, he accused Jesus of blasphemy. He ripped his robe and he said, blasphemy, we don't have to hear anything more. But the point is that he was wrong there. Of course he was sinfully wrong. But he was actually right to say, Christ, the Son of the living God, in one breath. And that is Jesus, who we're considering today, and who is, as we see in our genealogy in Luke's Gospel, the Son of David. Can you see how important that is, that inclusion? Uh, Let me just find it. I've lost it now. We've already seen that the first man, Adam, first man Adam was the son of God. Furthermore, by the grace of God, so are all of you in here who belong to Jesus. 
sons, daughters of God. I like to say sons because that's what the Bible says and that that really relays some extra information that you have an inheritance. So you who believe in Jesus, you who have received him as your saviour from sin, he has given you the right to be sons of the living God. Consequently, you are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ of a heavenly inheritance, which you will receive on the last day when Jesus comes again. And how wonderful is that? So you are a son or daughter of the living God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's a fact, a biblical fact. But having said that, understand that your sonship and the sonship of Adam is very different to the sonship of Jesus in that Jesus is the eternal son of God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Big difference there, isn't it? Fourthly, Jesus is Abraham's seed. We'll have a look at verse 34. Having seen that David, uh, Jesus is the, a descendant of David and how important that is, look at verse 34. Which was the son of Jacob, which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham. And I can stop there in verse 34. We see that David, uh, sorry, that Jesus is the descendant, the son of Abraham. Abraham, who lived about 2,000 years before Jesus was born. When Abraham was 75 years old, God called him out of Mesopotamia and promised that in him and his seed, all families of the earth would be blessed. This is massive. And I keep on, it's not something I plan to do, this is something that I keep coming up with time and again, because this is how all my sermons have come together. I'm going to be saying the same thing tonight, but doesn't mean to say you can have the night off, the evening off. I will be saying the same thing tonight because it just so happens to be relevant to what we're looking at in Genesis, of all, the first Bible, uh, book of the Bible. So, anyway, Abraham was 75 years old when God called him out of the land of idolatry, called him out of his... Um, father's house, took him to a land that he would show him and made great promises to him that in him and his seed that there would be blessings, worldwide blessings. When you look in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16, the Apostle Paul, he he explains what is meant by seed. In Abraham and his seed there will be blessings. What is this seed? all about. And and, and Paul explains very clearly that the seed is Jesus. It's Jesus. Paul said, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Which is Christ. I think it's deliberate that Paul called him Christ there and not Jesus because that ties him with being the promised Messiah who would come into the world and the blessings are ultimately to be realised and to be fulfilled in the promised Messiah 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, that we see that fulfilment, and it's an ongoing fulfilment of the promise of God made to Abraham. We see that ongoing fulfilment in Abraham's seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, listen to this. Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through to 29, speaking to Christians here, he said, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. You're all one in Christ Jesus if you've been baptised into Christ, if you've put on Christ, you've trusted in him as your saviour from sin. Paul went on to say, and if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This promise that, that has, that we see the thread of that promise running all the way through the Bible, right from Genesis, right from Genesis. And it, you follow that thread all the way through the Bible until finally you see that the seed of Abraham is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the promises are to be had in Jesus. All who belong to him are heirs according to that promise. Again, how wonderful. The, the blessings which are spiritual, they are everlasting, are received not by every family of the earth, without exception, but by individuals, males, female, bond, free, you name it, who are trusting in Christ as their saviour from sin. Wonderful promises. And Jesus, when he comes again in judgment, he will say to you, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Or, sorry, blessed are you of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you by my father from the foundation of the world. It was a done deal before God even said, let there be light. That inheritance for all you who are trusting in Jesus. Your names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life and in the fullness of time, Jesus, the promised Messiah, came into the world to reconcile you to God by his life of sinless obedience and by his death on the cross. And now you live a resurrection life in Christ and I trust the life you now live in the flesh. You live by faith of the Son of God who loved you and who gave himself for you. As we come to a close, I trust that as we've been dipping into the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that far from him being some kind of invention of the New Testament writers, or some kind of knee-jerk reaction from God, you know, God suddenly thought, my goodness, things are getting really bad down there in, in the world. I need to do something. I know I'll send my son into the world to sort things out. None of that at all. None of that. We can see that God devised a plan in eternity. His etern according to his eternal decree. We've seen prophecy 
in the Old Testament referring to the seed of Abraham, the promised Messiah. We've seen him to be a descendant of David who would have an everlasting uh, kingdom. And then finally he comes into the world and we see his uh, in these genealogies, in Luke's genealogy here of Jesus, all this wonderful truth and fulfilment of prophecy concerning the Christ. Don't you see it though? Don't you see it? Believe it. Believe it. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be saved. Amen.